Greetings, everyone. This is Jim Emmerich. Welcome to the Chointcast, interviews and short stories from across the world that connect us with people who wish to share their stories about leadership, where this passion comes from, and the goodness that results. Welcome to Chointcast 7. Today we connect with Susan Packard, who helped to build powerhouse media brands like HBO, CNBC, and HGTV. She was the co-founder of Scripps Networks Interactive and former chief operating officer of HGTV. Under Packard's helm, HGTV became one of the fastest growing cable networks in television history. Today, HGTV is available in more than 98 million U.S. homes and distributed in over 200 countries and territories. Susan now writes, speaks, and works with women in all stages of life at for-profit and not-for-profit companies. Wonderful to check in with you again, Susan. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Well, we're going to. I'm doing very well. Thank you. We're going to talk about your new rules of the game, Susan. But before we do that, you co founded HGTV, and everyone in our audience probably knows what that is. Can you tell us a fun story most people don't know? Yeah. Yeah. This, this might be a fun one. When we were just starting out, before we were even on the air, we wanted to attend trade shows in the cable programming area to get ourselves known to the industry. And um, so because we were really low man on the totem pole, as in not even launched yet, you know, we put in our applications at various trade shows, really, really huge mammoth, you know, events. And we always ended up with the worst space right near the restrooms and we were like 15 miles away from anything right but the joke was on the organizers because everybody had to use the restroom right so we got to flag a lot of people down and actually talk to them and get them acquainted with what we were doing with hgtv so it was one of these strange roundabout things that ended up being to our benefit that's pretty funny. That's making the, that's definitely making the best of it. Oh yeah. <laughs> Lemons out of lemon or of, of lemon, whatever that line is. Yep, that's what it that's what it was. Well, your book New Rules of the Game is subtitled 10 Strategies for Women in the Workplace. And I've obviously recommended this book to many female coaching clients, which I greatly appreciate. But given the dramatic mm, as I do as you do as, as well. Do I. Given the dramatic increase of awareness, reporting, and consequences of sexual harassment in the workplace we're all seeing this year, what's your perspective mm -hmm. of these events, and why now? Well, um, like anything, it always starts with one person. And I think that all the empires started, started to fall when Gretchen Carlson uh, blew the whistle on Roger Ailes at Fox News, and this would have been many months ago, probably summer, maybe early summer. Um, people today don't, most probably most people don't even know her name, but um, she was willing to stand to challenge Fox News, you know, this incredibly influential beast of an organization um, by coming out and saying that she'd been harassed by Roger Ailes, the CEO. And ultimately, that ended up, going, you know, he that was his demise. And since then, Bill O'Reilly and many others 
know, all under his watch, um, have also been um, exposed. But the problem has always been that where there aren't enough Gretchen Carlsons that they're willing to stand alone with a single voice. Um, it's too scary. I, I say this from the perspective of be, perspective of being a woman in corporate business for my whole career. It's too um, it's really daunting to stand alone and to accuse the leadership of an organization of something like this. Um, HR is not typically on board with the employees. You know, they're hired and they report to the C-suite people. So who do you go to? So what's changed is that you're starting to see multiple voices coming together in unison and exposing people. And when that happens, it's less scary and it's more powerful. And, you know, that the leadership of the organization needs to pay more attention because it's not just a lone voice out there. So as women today, you know, get through all of these things, and this is not going to slow, unfortunately, it'll be a while before this goes away, but um, finding other women that you feel safe with in an organization to talk to will be the best thing you can do. And then ultimately, there really is power in numbers. Wow, what a great answer, Susan. And I really appreciate you sharing that. It was, I've, been, I've been thinking about, uh, about your experiences and your book, New Rules of the Game, obviously, since some, some of these things have unfolded. How do people find you? Uh, website, Twitter, social media? Right, so pretty much all of the above. I mean, Twitter, social media. Um, I have a website, um, susanpacker.com. And I blog, um, and I, you know, I do all kinds of things on there. So probably the, any of those would be where you'd find me. Terrific. Let's jump into newer rules of the game. Right in the beginning, you utilize sports analogies, starting with Joan Cronin. What led you to choose that theme? Mm-hmm. Well, what led me to choose, first of all, Joan Cronin was that um, she is in my backyard. She was um, University of Tennessee's athletic director for all the women's sports. And she was the most successful athletic director in college sports for women, uh, you know, of all women directors. Um, and I really didn't know that I was going to lead with her story, but um, we sat down and she had a very concise way of explaining why she was successful, and she said it was the three F's, finance, football, and fundraising. So, you know, understanding uh, a financial, the financial end of things, football, which is a huge moneymaker or not, I mean, that's, that's the real bell, bellwether sport in all the collegiate athletics, and fundraising, which she did. I mean, she was responsible for. So why I chose gamesmanship was because, you know, in truth, it had been how I had um, succeeded. And I really hadn't given any thought to, well, Susan, how did you get to these leadership positions? Um, Until a friend of mine who wrote business books said, hey, you know, you might want to think about writing, you know, a story about a book about your, your experience in business. It's kind of an interesting story. 
And that led me to kind of stand back and say, well, what were the reasons? And I sort of crystallized it around this gamesmanship idea, which is the idea that as women, we can express our competitive spirit. We don't have to just compete against self or self-mastery, which we're really good at. But we can also have fun at work, see the workplace in a larger way, much like I describe a playing field. And by seeing the workplace that way, by looking at your colleagues that way, it helps you. um, It can help you to navigate your career and to be successful because it did for me. That's a wonderful answer. Now, interesting uh, thing I noted in the gamesmanship section, you included four positive traits. There's four positive traits of video gamers. Can you share those traits with us? Mm-hmm. Yes. So just to back up a quick second, you know, gamesmanship, when you think of that, you think of athletic competitions, athletic games, that kind of thing, which a lot of women, um, their knee-jerk reaction to hearing this was, well, I never played sports, or yeah, I played sports, but not a lot, and it's not my favorite thing, or whatever. And so then I thought, well, this is such a much broader idea than that kind of a a template of just team sports. So I included gamer, um, video gamer um, elements too, because you may be one of those, right? You may be a a video gamer. And I started researching that, and there were four qualities that uh, jumped out from, actually this was from a, a TED Talk that was given, but... The first is um, urgent optimism, which means that the gamer acts immediately to tackle a challenge. Social connectedness, gamers connect with others and build up social relationships. Blissful productivity, gamers are happier when challenged and willing to work hard. And epic meaning, gamers like missions and stories and become empowered with hope. And all of these apply to the workplace, and they apply in the best way uh, to an employee. So you're going to want people in your workplace who like, you know, who like challenges, like to problem solve, who enjoy social relationships and network. You're going to want people who are happier when they work hard. And of course, the epic meaning idea. Um, People are inspired today. Employees are most inspired today. If there is a mission to the organization beyond just making money, and the smart leaders recognize that and have a mission besides just making money, you know what's the bigger picture? Um, what is what gives meaning to the work that I do? And it's you know, bigger than any individual in an organization. So anyway, those four jumped out at me in this talk, and I thought, you know, we need to include those because this is another form of expressing your competitive spirit. That's really that's really fantastic. It's it's a great microcosm, and I think it's easy for, let's say, for folks in our generation, to put that gently, to, to dismiss 
uh, video gamers as, as say just wayward youth wasting their time. Um, there is a quest there for something for meaning. Right. You described getting in the game, Susan, right. via line experience, financial knowledge, and global perspective. Can you share an example of one of your own when you, quote, got into the game earlier in your career? Well, yeah, I include those three, um, line experience, financial knowledge, and global perspective, if you want to get into a C-suite job. Because in my experience, those three are, are kind of the, the sweet spot. You don't necessarily have to have all three, but it, it sure helps. Uh, and, you know, I've sat around plenty of tables and looked at talent in an organization and looked for these kinds of qualities. So um, as far as my history goes, I didn't get an MBA, an MA. Um, I didn't have anything but rudimentary financial um, classes in school and accounting and all that, just real rudimentary. So when I got into middle management and my supervisor gave me my budget and, you know, she said, you need to also start looking at our company's balance sheet and, you know, income statement and whatnot so that I had a better understanding if I wanted to continue to advance at this place. And I just looked at her like she was talking Greek. <laughs> so what did you do? So I went to a two-week course at Darden, um, Finance for the Non-Financial Executive, of course. And then from there, basically, I just always made really good friends with my CFO. And, you know, when I began um, work at HGTV, we were publicly traded and to address shareholders and so I needed to understand these things, but you can learn them on the job. I mean, that's really the message is I learned it on the job and I loved numbers or math and, you know, it's just really a language. Finance is just a, a language of business that um, is pretty easy to catch on with and especially if you have a strong financial team with you. But it is because it is that it's kind of hard for someone who doesn't have a willingness to learn it to get into the C-suite. So, you know, it's just one of those things that um, being equipped with at least, a, a, you know, like I said, a kind of a foundational knowledge would be important. Seems to be hinting at the term curiosity also, Susan. I'm, I'm happy to report we're both lifetime readers. So how do you balance what you call industry learning with your fun learning? You know, I'm in a place now, I'm not in the corporate world anymore. So the industry learning, um, I read, I still have certain periodicals that um, I, you know, read online or some are delivered, but um, that are advertising, marketing. Um, for the most part, I've moved on from all of that because I don't need it day to day. I certainly stay... Um, curious and informed when it comes to things like net neutrality or these national issues that programming. But um, really I've moved on more to reading sort of, I don't know if you would just call it a human story, um, stories that books that are inspiring. Uh, I'm reading right now Tattoos on the Heart, which is a book that um, Father Greg Doyle 
Boyle, B, not Doyle, Boyle, uh, wrote. And um, it is, I mean, you know, it's a really easy read, but every page is so packed with inspiration. And um, I, he's basically a guy who took over all these gangs in Los Angeles um, starting in the 90s and helped all these former gang members to get jobs. He started industry for these gang members, um, gave them meaning beyond, um, you know, just killing one another. And um, so those kinds of things that I enjoy the most reading uh, today. Sounds like a great book to look up. Susan, we're going to take a quick break here just so we can get a special message out to our audience. What places to visit remain on your bucket list? Choink is teaming with Amazonia Expeditions, the Amazon jungle's leading ecotourism operator, to introduce the Amazon Leadership Experience in 2018. Join us in the Tuayo Reserve to experience the most biodiverse region yet studied in the world while also becoming an energized leader. Please contact us if your organization is interested in this unique once-in-a-lifetime experience. Thanks, Susan, for letting us sneak that break in. In chapters 2, 7, and 8, you highlight how women may be perceived or are being watched. That's my term. What self-awareness tips do you have for our audience? Yeah, well, in my experience, uh, women in leadership positions are watched more because there are fewer of us. Um, and hopefully, you know, when you're in that position, you're modeling for young women coming along behind you. But um, because, you know, whether you're a manager or in an executive position, in any kind of position where you're running a team, it's important to think about how you present yourself, how you communicate. Um, so carriage, you know, how you carry yourself. Do you carry yourself with your arms folded and with a frown on your face? Um, do you walk into a meeting with a smile on your face? These kinds of things, which are welcoming versus off-putting. So how you carry yourself is important and how you communicate. And um, it, this is just my experience, having worked with men uh, my whole career. But what I found is I sort of had to throttle back the words I use when I was in uh, meetings with men, meaning that, well, you know, I put this in the book. It's a funny little statistic, but McKinsey did a study and they found that women say an average of 21,000 words a day and men say an average of 7,000 words a day. So, you know, our communication gap there exists. And what I found is the more I tried to talk my way through things with men, the, um, the harder it was. So what I did was I would, in really important situations, strategy, you know, debating a point that really make a difference, I would think in advance of how I could crystallize what I wanted to say and just really pack a punch. Um, and so, you know, that's another thing is, Brevity, clarity, um, whether it's men or women. I just think, you know, time's the enemy at work. So the quicker you can communicate effectively, uh, the better it will be for you. That sounds pretty good, especially the clarity part. 
Yeah, those are just some thoughts. Now, similar to that, you distinguish asking what is necessary for career advancement from old-school assertiveness. It's a terrific idea, but can you untangle those two for us? Today, what matters uh, for women is that, you know, you can communicate um, or debate a point or ask for things because we always need to ask for things if we're going to be successful. You know, whether it's capital or people or technology, we need to be asking for things. And you can ask for them in a combative way or in a respectful way. And these are these subtle um, kind of two sets of rules, issues that exist in the workplace for men and women. So for women, asking in a respectful way, but in a direct way, I have something in the book I call artful assertiveness, and I define it as direct honesty with a smile. So it's, you know, being in a situation where if you have to ask for things to make you successful, um, you can ask for them respectfully. And also the other part of it is ask for them in a way that connects the organization's benefit. So if you're asking for more people, for example, you can you, you should make your case always in a way that benefits the organization. Not you, not you personally, but the organization. I really like the part, Susan, where you talked about connecting with, with the company goals. That comes up a lot when when coaching people to tie their leadership philosophies to the goals of the organization because then the purpose that's driving your leadership philosophy is also moving the organization forward and it's it's very similar. Maybe right. maybe maybe my favorite chapter in your in your book New Rules of the Game is chapter 9 called you you called it show true grit. Uh, that's very powerful and it's a lasting chapter and I just want you to share with us a little bit how you think about the term grit. Okay. I think about grit in three ways, Um, physically, mentally, and spiritually. So what I, when I define it and when I'm in conversation with others about it, I try to make sure that I can include all of those uh, ways to look at it and just go down that, that order, that list. Um, physically having resilience or grit, if you're in a leadership job, you're likely going, um, you're probably going to be on the road a fair amount, for example. And the, the importance of keeping yourself strong physically is a big part of this. With travel is um, very, can make you very weary. Um, and you know, Jim, because you've traveled most of your life and so have I, that um, going from city to city, it's so physically grueling. So make sure that you take care of yourself. Or even if you're not traveling, if you are in a position where you're going back to back, my son was telling me recently that on his Tuesdays and Wednesdays, those are the days where the meetings are back to back to back. And being able to just have the wherewithal to kind of hang in there 
Um, so physical is one part of it, probably the least important part of it, um, but it's something worth mentioning. Mental, it kind of goes without saying. If you are in that, you know, if you're that Tuesday, Wednesday person and you're in one meeting after another, having the ability to stay focused, being able to change up topics from one meeting to another, um, and all of that and determination just from a career standpoint. I mean, I think that's mental. All of those are um, really wonderful qualities to have that are qualities of grit and they will help you and they will help you to succeed. Um, The one that sometimes surprises people is what I call spiritual grit. And this is in my book, I talked about emotional maturity And this is when you go from me to we, and you really do step up as a leader, and you're looking at your organization in its totality. It's no longer all about you. It's about the organization and how you can uh, make it better and the people in it better. And whether that's mentoring, um, you know, coaching that you do, Jim, um, the things that can enhance the skill sets of the people in your organization. And um, there's a book I'm writing now, and I have a chapter on compassion, which is a funny word in the workplace, right? We just don't talk about it much. But um, my rule of thumb was always, if somebody needed to sit with me on a personal issue and they didn't do it regularly, (laughs) then it must be important. So um, so I would make time um, to do that. And, you know, sometimes people just need to say things. And once they say them, they feel um, sort of renewed. So anyway, um, so that's the spiritual part of grit. But it takes all of those things and um, life situations coming at you and being able to work on your resilience in all of those ways can help to make uh, your life easier and, and better and more fulfilling. I really like that part, especially um, when you when you talked about uh, compassion and also learning learning that it's not about you. you. You've probably noticed that one of my favorite pull quotes from your book is on Twitter all the time because it uh, it appealed right. to me so much. Culture is important yes. to a- any organization, Susan. Everyone seems to be talking about it now. Um, what would be your definition of culture or what would an outsider see when they look at an organization such as HGTV as a cultural indicator? Well, to me, the culture of an organization is really its personality. Um, You know, it includes its value set, but it's usually more from the outside looking in, it would be how do these people interact with one another? Um, And, for HGTV, what was really important to us, um, before we even got on the air, the startup team had an offsite meeting and we um, came up with, well, we wanted to come up with a mission statement, but nobody could write it. I, mean, I don't know if you've ever written them. They're hard to write. So we said, okay, well, what about, what, what do we all believe in as values? And those became our core values. And, you know, 22 years later, they haven't changed. And so... For HGTV, if you were to come into the organization, walk into our building, I hope what you would see is um, the core value of shared responsibility. 
which was very important to us. Um, just a few of those that are related to that, and I'll get back to it. Um, we had shared responsibility, compassion, support, um, openness. So these were ways to connect one another in, in sort of the, the rules of the road of how you behave in, in, this, in our organization, HGTV. But shared responsibility was particularly important because there are organizations where it's, you know, every man for themselves or every woman for themselves, and they're successful. Um, very competitive organizations internally. Many out there, uh, maybe the majority are that way and very successful. That wasn't what we wanted to build. We had all come from those places and we wanted to build something that was more collaborative. So shared responsibility was um, what we keyed off. Whenever we held, you know, company-wide meetings, certainly our meetings, the startup team meetings, um, so we even, um, from a structure standpoint, we created our organization around a matrix. So the what I guess would be considered the back office functions, which are most of what a company does, the accounting, the finance, the, the legal, um, the operations, technology, those were all matrixed. And if you were running, say, Food Network, you would go to this, this matrix organization who would serve you, if you will. Um, and that was a big example of, of, of our shared responsibility. And so we had to be careful about the people we hired to run our brands, like a food network or an HGTV, to make sure they could be respectful, um, you know, going back to the matrix. It's really who you hire. Um, that That's probably the most important thing. It's pretty neat. This might be the first instance where I've heard of a value set that actually ties to a matrixed organization rather than many organizations treating things that are that are common across, say, divisions such as back office or IT, uh, security, things like that, are often treated quite separately. It's 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 right. It's it's really it's really neat that you had an opportunity to do that from the start. Here's our, our, our last question for, for the for the joint cast season. Since since you're not active with HGTV now, you've you've been very active in networking and women's advocacy groups. What has that taught you the past several years? So much. I mean you know, whenever I speak I always tell whoever's organizing it, make sure there's rooms there's room at the end for Q and A because I want to hear the questions because they teach me. And I want to, you know, really continue to learn. And that's how I learn is, you know, by the questions that are asked and by the, you know, the social time after and whatnot. Um, so I'm seeing that there are more women who are in situations of stay-at-home dads like I was, and that just thrills me to no end. Um, it is true that to have a partner in, um, who's willing to be hands-on with raising kids is, is important to your own success. At least that was my experience. Um, so that's exciting. Uh, women are still, you know, they burn bright. We, we burn bright for more knowledge, for self, um, more self-improvement, all of these ways that we can be successful. Um, we were very competitive with ourselves 
and that's good. Um, what I'm trying to teach with the first book that we're talking about now is um, trying to teach be comfortable being competitive with your colleagues too because more likely than not, they're feeling that way toward you and it's just it gets gets you to an even playing ground and it doesn't have to be ugly and um, it doesn't have to be cutthroat. You can have a lot of fun with competition too. So um, those, those are some of the things that I'm seeing. Um, I'm going to be very curious. So we have a millennial and he's, his boss is female and her boss is female and the leadership of his very, the very large organization he's a part of is mostly female. So I'm going to be really curious to see as these millennials, you know, grow into middle and senior management and they're male, how they deal with women, you know, coming up as a ladder and how they see women as leaders. Because all that, you know, since I've started hasn't really changed much, regretfully. But um, I'm hopeful that it will. Well, thanks, and it, it should be fun to watch. There's there's so many new patterns as observations. You've you've probably got about as uh, good a perspective uh, what to look for. And speaking of looking ahead, Susan, you've you've hinted at at a second book. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, this is a book. It's you know my first book. I talked about emotional maturity. It's the second part of the book. It was three out of the ten chapters. And there's so much more um, I wanted to say, but that wasn't the focus of the book. So I'm taking off a little bit from that that um, part of the book. And this one is about emotional intelligence and building trust in teams. So it's my view, and also like the first book where I interviewed a dozen CEOs, I've interviewed some incredible people who I feel have tremendous emotional intelligence and uh, what I call emotional fitness to be leaders of organizations and what that looks like today and um, how these leaders and how I and others in my organization help to build this kind of leadership and uh, build trust in teams because today, especially with technology as it is and um, remote teams, you know, people working off-site and whatnot, it's harder to build trust in teams. And that was always the magic ingredient for any place I worked. You know, if I could trust people I worked with and they trusted me, then we were just that much more successful. We got things done more quickly. Um, we had more fun. So, um, so all of the, you know, essentially it's, it's looking at, it's sort of a new view of emotional intelligence and, and trust is a big component of that. You know, especially with, with your, your interviews and the relevance you'll get from that. Really looking forward to, to reading that, Susan. Again, uh, to the audience, New Rules of the Game, Susan Packard, wonderful book and a, and a terrific joint cast. Thank you so much, Susan. Thank you, Jim. I've been delighted to be talking to you. Thank you for listening today. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, hashtag Choink, C-H-O-I-N-Q-U-E, and visit www.choink.com to 
sign up for an upcoming Academy Leadership Excellence course and to support one of our worthy causes, such as Autism Speaks Walk.